Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 307 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Adam. Joe will be back in our next episode, finally, from her trip in Seattle. Uh, so just me one more time for an introduction. Today's episode is an interview I did with Lincoln Purse, who is the creator and author of the wildly popular Big Nate books and comics. Uh, and he has a new kind of illustrated novel that uh, was released recently called Max and the Midnights. It's very, uh, we talk about in the, the episode kind of struggling to define it, but it's a middle grade novel, but it has all of the characteristics of his Big Nate comics as well. So there's a lot of illustrations in here that he draws and we dive into the craft of how he decides where to put those uh, pictures and images and deciding what to draw and whatnot. And it's, it's a really interesting conversation. Um, we get a lot of books sent to us f- across all um, reading levels. And we realized it, it had been a little while since we did a children's book. And then when Lincoln's book came across our desks, we realized like, first off, Big Nate is an establishment of a, you know, of a series. It's something that's been around forever. And it's in newspapers all around the, the country. And the, the books are so wildly popular. And then when we got this new book that was a, a little bit of a different story than what he normally tells, we just we reached out and we're like, we have to have him come on the show and, and talk about it because it's a really interesting story. So you guys will really love it. Uh, it's great for people of all ages, whether you've read a Big Nate book or, or not, whether you have uh, a child in your life anywhere or not. I, it's a really interesting conversation about how he does what he does and how he spends so much time on it. So we hit it off really well. It was great stuff. I think you guys will very much enjoy it. Uh, if you want to get a hold of us, you can visit us at professionalbooknerds.com. You can email us at professionalbooknerds@overdrive.com, And you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at ProBookNerds. Uh, if you haven't done so yet, if you wouldn't mind, if you could give us a five-star rating or, uh, or and leave a review in iTunes or whatever it is you listen to, the podcast that would be awesome it helps people find us a little bit more easily and we have some really cool news about the podcast coming up in uh, a couple of weeks here that um, it's a really fun kind of new venture that we're doing that i think will help us a lot and i think you guys will be interested in it too because it's going to open up uh, your eyes to even more content so uh, if you missed last week's episode on thursday that's when we did breakdown of all of the biggest titles that are coming out in february that i think uh, there's a little bit of everything there's a little bit of something for everybody in there. Christina stepped in for Jill. Uh, it's Jill and I's books like normal, but then Christina also gave a, a bunch of ensemble books as well. So really good stuff there if you had not had a chance to check it out yet. So, Okay, I think that's all from me. Uh, Lincoln is really cool. He spent a lot of time with us. This is really great. So I, I think you guys will very much appreciate diving into how he creates his stories. So I hope you guys enjoy this interview with Lincoln Purse on the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. Hi, everyone. It's Adam again, and I am incredibly excited to be joined on the phone by Lincoln Purse, whose name you probably know attached to the Big Nate book series and comics, which has sold millions and millions of copies all around the world. It's been published in 25 countries worldwide, 
and you can find his comics in over 300 U.S. papers and online every single day. He has a new book out called Max and the Midnights, which is so much fun. We're going to dive into that. But first, Lincoln, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Adam. I'm really happy to be with you. So for people who might not have seen it yet or might not have heard, can you give them kind of a breakdown about Max and the Midnights? I can, yeah. It is a comedic adventure story set in the Middle Ages. It's the first book that I've written that has nothing to do with Big Nate, (laughs) and it was a really nice departure for me. I had done eight Big Nate novels, the last one in 2016, and I kind of reached that point where, you know, we've, we've probably all had the experience of watching a TV show or reading a book series and thinking, you know, I sort of wish they had stopped a little bit earlier. You know, it, it went on too long, and and I thought eight big eight books was enough. And so I was casting around for an idea because I wanted to write more books. I was just sort of done with, with big eight at that time. And... I, I went back to some ideas I had sort of played around with a few years earlier and then put in a drawer, and one of them was this sort of a, a sword-in-the-stone spoof <laughs> that I had started, and I dusted that off, and I really liked, you know, the the medieval template, and it just sort of spoke to me, and I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dust that off. And I kind of abandoned the sword in the stone idea eventually and came up with this different sort of story arc that I liked better. And then I just went with it from there. And it was it was so much fun because I was writing about what were to me entirely new characters. And that's always fun when you're sort of getting to know these these characters through the process of writing and drawing. And I was drawing stuff that I wouldn't have occasion to draw in Big Nate, like, you know, dragons and medieval castles (laughs) and medieval costumes and all that. And and it was really a blast. Um, And a goose. Don't forget, uh, you also got to draw a goose. (laughs) Exactly. I did have to educate myself about how to draw draw a goose. when people look at your work from afar, they, you know, they see that, you know, your kind of target audience is, is eight to 10 year olds. But I have to tell you, like reading this book last night, I love that you put things in here that are like you, it's not just like a simple comic for, for kids to, to see a fun picture and, and then move on. Like you have plot twists and there's things that the parents are going to appreciate. Like it feels like you very much create your work to make sure that it can be enjoyed by people of all ages. Yeah, thank you. I, I try to. And I think that my experience with the comic strip, with Big Nate as a comic strip, really informs that because I've been doing Big Nate as a comic strip since 1991. And even though it has sort of come to be identified as a kid's comic strip. I've never written a comic strip for kids. I I write it for anyone who likes comics. And so I think that's something that a lot of entertainments work really well on that level. And I think it's just uh, something that, you know, certainly parents can appreciate when they buy a book for their kids, if there's something in there for them to enjoy. Or I think that you know, the Pixar movies are sort of famously really good at that. You know, they're 
highly entertaining for kids, but there's stuff in there for the, the parents as well. And, and yeah, I think it's, uh, for me, it keeps it entertaining because I, I think that if an author is writing only for an audience, I think that can get dangerous. I think you've got to be, you just got to be writing from your own heart too and writing to, to please yourself. And for me, if I'm not cracking myself up, then, you know, sort of what's, what's the point? I, it has to be fun for me too. And, and, and I'm 55 and if I can crack myself up at 55, then I think that's, you know, that's sort of a good indication that I'm, you know, I'm on the right track. Oh, and I have to imagine you've gotten messages throughout the years from parents saying that you, they appreciate this just because, you know, thinking of, of your comics and your books, like when, when I think of children, whether it's my nieces or nephews or other children, you know, they, <laughs> children like repetitive things. They like to hear the same stories over and over. So I have to imagine you've gotten messages from parents who are appreciative of the fact that there is stuff in here that they can enjoy as well, as opposed to just doing the same like rhyming or sing-songing verses over and over. Yeah, precisely. You know, there's a there's a great quote from one of my heroes, Charles Schultz of Peanuts fame, and you know he was he was talking about sort of storytelling in general and comics in particular, and he said, you know, doing a daily comic strip is kind of the art of telling the same joke over and over again without repeating yourself, and I think there's a real parallel between children's books and comic strips, which are obviously two things that are really near and dear to my heart. And I think the common thread is that you ideally, you want the kids to almost, to know the characters so well that they can almost anticipate what's going to happen, but then you want to make it fresh and surprising for them too, so that they understand the characters' motivations and their personalities and how they're going to react, but they don't know or can't predict the specifics of how the characters might react or what they might do. And, yeah, that's a challenge, and it's fun, you know, to just constantly try to keep it fresh. I love also that the way that you structure your novels, especially for, you know, for middle grade and, and younger students, is I feel like you're almost teaching people how to learn it's this beautiful transition from you know exclusively picture books to novels where you you know and people will see this with max and the midnights when you know when you're when you're flipping through there's obviously the the comic strip sections but then you do have like whole paragraphs of of text and things and it, it feels like the way that you have these laid out is i don't know if it's specifically designed but it certainly helps young readers understand story structure and it's just it's a really unique way of of creating a novel and I, I have to imagine you know teachers and people appreciate that yeah I, and I appreciate you mentioning it because it it is a lot of work and I take a lot of pride in how I organize the books and the the interplay between the comics and the text and um, I have I've sort of struggled over the years with how even to describe these books because a lot of times people will call them graphic novels mm -hmm. and they'll be shelved with all the graphic novels in a bookstore or in a library and, and that's fine, but they're not really, by the strict definition, definition, they're not really graphic novels and they're, they're certainly not illustrated novels either because 
in a in a straightforward illustrated novel, if you have a drawing, you could probably just as easily put it on page fifty five or on fifty six, mm-hmm. and it would not it would not uh, affect the flow of the story. But in these books, which some people call hybrid books, and I like that term, in, so in a hybrid book, if you move the art then that's obviously going to change the whole structure of the page. If you if you tweak some text, then that might change how, you know, the size of the drawing that is either right above it or right below it. And so it's a really, it's, it's almost like a jigsaw puzzle, you know, putting together the blocks of text and the art. And, um, and it, I find it really satisfying when it all sort of comes together. And um, and I do think that kids, I do think it's a way of reading for kids that is a little bit different from, you know, it's different from if they were, say, to just pick up a, a comic book or it's different than if they were just to pick up, you know, a novel that just, you know, that had like one picture of each third page or something like that. So um, it's fun for me and I hope it's fun for the kids. So uh, you touched on something really interesting about the, you know, putting this together like a jigsaw, basically. So I'm I'm curious from a creation standpoint, because you said not only is this not like a, a classic graphic novel or an illustrated regular novel, especially because you're doing both sides of this you're you're writing the story and you're and you're drawing everything so from a creation standpoint are you sort of writing the whole story out first working with an editor on on the story and then deciding which parts to draw or i guess just how does that process work because i imagine if you draw a few pages that you want to be in there but then the story structure changes you've wasted a lot of time using those those drawings yeah, I would not say my methods are the most time efficient, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of sort of little tips and starts, but I do not write the whole story um, and then sort of decide, okay, what's going to be text and what's going to be art. I do it. I do it literally, you know, paragraph by paragraph and page by page. So I, I start by writing in longhand. And then a lot of times, you know, the the books are very dialogue-driven, and so a lot of times it's just a matter of deciding, okay, you know, is this bit of dialogue something that would, you know, almost it's almost rhythmic. From a rhythm standpoint, is this going to be a beat where I want this in a speech bubble with with a drawing, or is this going to be fine just sitting in the middle of a paragraph? I find that you know the the more I do these, the easier it is for me to determine which is going to work better. And I think you know the classic advice of show not tell is always instructive because you know in in a book like this, which is sort of this epic quest story, there's there are a lot of opportunities for action, and I think it's pretty clear to me as I go along, okay, a kid would rather see this part than read about it, you know, and um, and I want to make sure that there are comics on, on every page, you know, and so it just, it's, so I, re- I write the books a chapter at a time and I send each chapter to my editor mm-hmm. and we go over it chapter by chapter and so 
when I'm writing chapter three or chapter four, and I think there are 15 chapters in Max and the Midnights, you know, I'm not sure how the book is going to turn out. So I, I really do sort of make it up as I go along. And I know it's not the way that some authors might feel comfortable working, but for me, it, it works well, especially because I just don't see how I could retroactively sort of go back and, and try to figure out which is going to be pictures and which is going to be text. It really has to happen, you know, as I'm writing. <laughs> that sounds, I'll be honest, this sounds exa- exhausting. Like writing a book is hard <laughs> enough, but this whole process is, I am blown away. And you do this all by hand, correct? You, you do all your drawings by hand? I do, yeah, I do. I'm a technophobe. <laughs> and uh, I know that there are much more efficient ways to work. You know, a lot of cartoonists and uh, illustrator friends of mine I know are now working with tablets and with antiques, and there are, it just really, you know, they no longer have to use rulers or stencils or things like that that can come in handy when you're trying to make a perfectly curved line or a perfectly <laughs> straight line. But, um, I do like, for now, for now anyway, I'm still comfortable doing it the old school way. And, um, but, it, but yes, it can be exhausting. And then, and then when you get into the editing process, you know, this book is 279 pages, but the finished manuscript was more like 310 or so. Mm-hmm. So I had to, I had to cut out about 30 pages and and that's complicated when everything that you take out affects everything around it. You know, you can't just take out a paragraph and say, okay, I'm done, because then that's going to that's gonna move something. That's going to make a drawing move. And then if that drawing moves, another drawing's going to have to move. So, yeah, there's a lot of tweaking. <laughs> um, so you mentioned a little bit, uh, a little while ago, you know, Charles Schultz being one of your, your idols. So I'm just curious... How did you get into this line of work, into drawing comics and, you know, being an author and then, like you said, kind of creating these hybrid stories? Well, I got into drawing comics just because that was my, really was my childhood dream starting when I was in about third grade. And when I realized that there were real people behind the comics that I loved reading, I decided that's what I wanted to do, get a get a comic strip in the newspaper like Charles Schultz, my hero. And so I did that. I accomplished that in 1991. And I never thought about children's books for years and years. And if I did think about books, it was the sort of compilation books, you know, collections of comic strips that have already appeared in the newspapers that are so common, you know, like Calvin and Hobbes books mm-hmm. or the Peanuts Treasuries or things like that. I never thought about writing novels. And what what changed that was Jeff Kinney and his Wimpy Kid books, because Jeff uh, was a big Nate fan. He wrote me fan mail when he was a freshman in college and he was an aspiring cartoonist he did a comic strip for his school paper at the university of maryland 
and he wrote me some questions about cartooning, and I wrote him back, and it was clear how talented he was. And Anyway, this was before the days of email, and we became pen pals. And so we had a, a pen pal friendship that blossomed into a, a, a true friendship when we actually met each other in person. And then when he graduated from college and, you know, started a family, and I had started a family, and we... We, we sort of drifted out of touch. And then when he started the Wimpy Kid books, he was up my way. He came up to Portland, Maine, where I live, to do a talk at the public library. And we got together. And even all these years later, he was still a Big Nate fan. But now he was a Big Nate fan who was, you know, this 500-pound gorilla in the world of <laughs> children's book publishing. And we went out to lunch after his talk at the library, and he said, you know, there should be big Nate books. And I said, absolutely, you know. <laughs> and, he, and he introduced me to some people in the business, and I still at this point wasn't thinking I was going to write novels. I was still thinking, yeah, there should be big Nate collections. There should be big Nate compilations. But when I met with some of the people that Jeff had, had sort of made introductions for, uh, they said, yeah, we'd like you to write stories. We'd like you to write novels. And even though I had never done that, I was confident I could do it because by that point I had been doing the Big Nate comic strip for about 18 years. I knew the characters super well, and I was accustomed to telling stories that only took about four panels to tell, but storytelling is storytelling, you know, and I thought, yes, I can do this. And um, so that was how I got started, and and I knew from a format standpoint that I that I you know I wanted to tell these stories in the first person from Nate's point of view, and I just thought, you know, I Jeff's book was really sort of a trailblazer, and my timing was really fortuitous because I came out with my first book in 2010. And, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the books that have sprung up sort of in the aftermath of the Wimpy Kid books hadn't come out yet. I was one of the first. And so families would go into a bookstore and they'd say, well, you know, my kids read the first, first couple of Wimpy Kid books. What else do you have, you know, that's, has comics in it, you know, that my 10 year old would like? And starting in 2010, they could say, well, have you have you ever tried Big Nate? And so I was really lucky, and I owe so much to Jeff for sort of opening some doors for me. And that's, that's sort of how I, that's how I landed in the children's book realm, which, I, which had never even occurred to me for years and years. The fact that you and Jeff Kinney are friends, that's just, that's so amazing to me from a, a lover of, of children's books. And I actually saw, you know, on the, the cover of the, the novel, the other blurb you have is by Dave Pilkey. Like, if the three of you just, like, hang out together, I feel like <laughs> like parents and kids' brains would explode if they just saw you in, like, one place. Well, you know, what was, what was so fun was, um, you know, I had known Jeff all that time, but I didn't know Dave Pilkey. And then uh, back in 2013... I don't know if you remember, but there were some horrible, you know, tornadoes out in Oklahoma, mm -hmm. and uh, a number of schools and school libraries were damaged. And Jeff sort of 
saw the pictures on TV of, you know, a school library that had just been completely destroyed. And so he proposed, you know, let's do a fundraiser. So we did a, we went to Oklahoma and it was me and Jeff and Dave Pilkey and Stefan Pastis, who does the Timmy Failure book. Uh-huh. And so we did a fundraiser. We did one in Oklahoma City and one in Tulsa. And it was it was a blast because um, I had never met Dave Pilkey before. I knew Stefan a little bit, and I knew Jeff quite well. And and it was just a blast, sort of talking shop with those guys. And um, and that was actually one of those conversations with all four of us was sort of planted the seed for Max and the Midnight's because uh, spoiler alert. You know, Max ends up being a girl in this mm-hmm. book. And so here we were, these four author slash cartoonists, all the all middle aged men basically, <laughs> and we had all written these books that featured pre adolescent boys. And I can't remember who posed the question, but someone did. Someone said, You know, do you think a middle-aged man could write a story with a female protagonist that wouldn't seem either fake or creepy or you know, <laughs> whatever. And I said to myself, you know, I, I think I could do that. And when I dusted off that old sword in the stone idea and started thinking about stories, that was when I sort of latched onto the notion of, okay, you know, what if, what if this kid who wants to be a knight ended up being a girl? And that would also, that would almost raise the stakes a little bit for the story because not only is she in this medieval world where kids really have no agency over what they do or what they become, but she's a girl, which means she's sort of doubly marginalized, you know, and her prospects to lead a life of adventure are not looking great when the story begins. And so uh, so that's how I ended up landing on this idea of Max being a girl. And um, and it's, you know, for me, that that made the book extra fun. I, I was, I'm glad you brought that up because I, it made me so happy as I was reading it last night. I, I was sitting there being like, wow, I can't wait to give this to one of my you know, nine-year-old nephews, and and then as soon as I got to that part, I was like, now I can't wait to give a copy to my nine-year-old nephew and my eight-year-old niece. Like, it's just, obviously, <laughs> it's a story, regardless of whether Max was a boy or a girl, that would be great for, you know, any child. But I, I really did love the fact that not only do you make Max a female, but you also have it be where... It's just established as a normal character at first, and you don't think about the fact that Max is a boy at the beginning. But then, when you have that kind of reveal, it's very—it is—it it, it puts a whole new spin on the book, and it's just one of those twists that you have in this book that made me want to keep turning the pages. It was such—that's such a good idea. And you—and I will say, not to just give you credit, because I'm on the phone with you, but you did—you do a really great job of, like you said, not having it be you know, a weird thing that a middle-aged white guy is writing about a young girl. Right. Yeah, thank you. I, um, my, my goal, my goal was to obviously have Max's gender 
be a really important part of the story, but also, in the end, have it be almost inconsequential mm-hmm. in the sense that by the end of the story, the fact that Max is a girl is, is really almost an afterthought. It's, it's her qualities of, you know, bravery and valor and smarts and inventiveness and pluck and all these things that really matter. And the fact that she's a girl, I think, you know, in the end, really is not a, a determining factor in how the story unfolds, but it is very important as far as kind of a a story point because I do want you know a, a, a nine or ten year old girl reading this to feel empowered and I do want a nine or ten year old boy reading this to sort of come to the part where where you have the reveal that Max is a girl and I want the boys to at that point be so bought in with who Max is mm-hmm. that they just want to keep reading. So, uh, so hopefully, I, I I got there. Yeah, the, the way I would describe it is Max being a female is part of her story, but it does not define her story. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, so towards the end of our podcast, we like to do what we call the Nerd Nine. It's just nine lighthearted questions. Um, we used to call them rapid fire and then I would get sidetracked with authors and our listeners would yell at me and say to stop saying that. So, um, don't put a lot of thought into these if if you can. And and the first one is what's the last book you finished reading? Oh, it's called crazy with a K and it's a, it's a book about the cartoonist George Harriman who did the comic strip crazy cat. Hmm. Uh, do you have a favorite place to read? In my office. I have an office here at home. It's right off my dining room, and it's small. It's only about 10 feet by 10 feet. But um, I'm sitting on a couch right now where I do most of my reading. Uh, do you remember the book that made you fall in love with reading as a child? I would. There are many. But if I had to choose one, it was called Banner in the Sky by James Ramsey Ullman. It was a mountain climbing story that I I was a big reader before then, but that book totally thrilled and enchanted me in a way. And I read it many, many times in my sort of starting when I was nine or ten, and I read it a lot between then and probably when I finished high school. Uh, what's one place you'd like to travel that you have not yet been to? Barcelona, Spain. That's where I want to go. Wow, you really had that one fired up and ready. <laughs> do you uh, do you have a favorite holiday to celebrate? Thanksgiving. Yeah, I love Thanksgiving. I love all the trimmings. I love the time of year. Uh, so, yeah, that's, that's at the top of my list. Are you a coffee person or a tea person? I'm a decaf person. I wouldn't say I'm a huge coffee person, and caffeine makes me jittery, so uh, decaf. Uh, Cats or dogs? Dogs. Do you have a favorite food? Boy, that's a tough one. I would say some kind of pie. I'm a big pie maker and a pie eater, 
So I would say there's nothing like a good blueberry pie on a summer day. Ooh, nice. And then if you could have dinner with one person, alive or dead, who would you pick? Oh, my God. Uh, that's a tough one. I guess probably Abraham Lincoln, who um, I read a lot of history. That's sort of my the nerd slash geek part of me is sort of a history buff. And he, to me, is just one of the more fascinating and impressive figures in history that I've ever read about, so I'd go with him. That's a really good answer. I thought, sure, you were going to say Charles Schultz. That's a really good answer. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. And then uh, just the last question for you. What do you hope that readers take away from reading Max and the Midnights? First and foremost, I want the kids to have fun reading the book, and I, I always say that when I'm writing a book, I write the sort of book that I would have loved reading as a kid, and I like having fun when I read. I mean, I like I like to provoke, I like thoughts to be provoked and all that, but but when you're a kid, more than anything, you just want to feel like, boy, that was it was so much fun reading that book. I'm going to go back to page one. I'm going to start all over again. So that's. That's first and foremost. And and second, I think it's just a little bit what we were talking about earlier with, you know, I want I want kids to really feel connected to this character, whether the readers are boys or girls. You know, there's mm-hmm. when I got into this game, I heard that girls will read anything, but a boy will never read a quote unquote girls book and you know, I always think to myself, well, what what does that even mean? What is a girl's book? What is a boy's book? I mean, I when I was a kid, I remember reading books and loving books that had girl heroes like Harriet the Spy. I remember mm-hmm. reading that, and 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 you know, Charlotte's Web, and and um, and so I think that that to me it would, it would be a huge plus if you know, boys and girls alike sort of enjoyed this book and that it, you know, I, I'm happy if kids read it no matter what, but I'll be even happier if, if people read it and absorb it without labeling it either like, oh, this is a girl's book or this is a boy's book or whatever. I just, I just want, I just want it to be a book. That is a perfect answer. Lincoln, thank you so much for joining us today. This was a blast. Yes, thank you, Adam. Had a great time. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can add these titles to their collections and marketplace. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, 
please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.